and I've titled the message Portrait of the Godless. It begins uh, with the uh, superscription there, um, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Again, we have another psalm written by David. We know that he wrote at least uh, 75 of the 150 psalms are attributed to David in one fashion or another. And uh, it is addressed to the chief musician, perhaps a key musical leader in in, uh, David's day. Others think it might be really addressing the ultimate musician, um, which would be God himself, as as some think uh, would be the case. But again, uh, it's a little indefinite. Um, in terms of the outline, uh, note there, uh, verses 1 through 3, universal depravity. These are the verses that uh, Paul quotes in the New Testament, establishing universal sin problem. And then verses 4 through 6, <clears throat> futility of depravity. And finally, verse 7, longing for God's deliverance. So we have seven, seven verses. So you can imagine the message is going to be kind of short tonight. Nah, (laughs) you know me too well, I guess. Anyway, it won't be too long, but anyway, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none who does good. The fool has a heart problem, he has a God problem, and in the Hebrew there are actually three different words for fool. Uh, Let me put them up for you here. And uh, the first one there means dull. Uh, the second one means unreasonable. And the third one, uh, nabal, means brutish. And the word used here in Psalm 14.1 is the word nabal, which implies uh, really a, a perverseness, a, an aggressive perverseness, as really epitomized in Nabal, uh, who was Abigail's husband, as we see in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And so let me put that on the overhead here. We read there, Please let my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. Of course, Abigail was a very wise woman, and she recognized the bad character of her husband. He's Nabal. And she says, For as is his name, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Of course, you know, the context here is everybody realizes David is God's anointed And Nabal is totally dissing that. He has no regard for David whatsoever. And she says, he's a fool because of this. And, uh, but I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Of course, there's a whole context there. But uh, all this to say, Nabal is really the idea of of one who is a fool, uh, who is rebelliously perverse. Uh, The issue here is really not an intellectual issue. Uh, The person is not mentally dull. Uh, like somebody might say, well, I played the part of a fool. Uh, you know, well, that wasn't very sharp. wasn't very bright in doing that. Uh, really, the idea here is morally perverse. Uh, this rebel has a moral problem. Now, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This is the creed of the fool. Uh, this emanates uh, from the heart. He says this in his heart. This is his heart perspective. He's planting himself in his heart here. This is what they're thinking, this is how, and, and consequently that's what they act out. The heart represents the core of a person's being related to the will, related to the commitments that we make. Now there's a couple of, way, a couple of different ways how we can understand this there is no God. Commonly, most commonly, it is taken to be the idea that God does not exist. You know, the, the, the atheist, there is no God. 
So uh, clearly the fool does not want God to exist, right? Uh, Because he does not want to be held accountable for his wickedness. And people can self-deceive themselves into affirming in their hearts what they really want to believe, uh, no matter how contrary the evidence may be. Now, to take the position that God does not exist, what we commonly call the atheistic position, is really, uh, very clearly, the position of a fool. Uh, often it is joked that April 1st, uh, is, is, uh, they have their own holiday, right? The, the, the fool's holiday, April fool's, the, the atheist holiday. Um, the folly of the atheist position really is not very well thought out. And again, this is not an intellectual position, I don't think. It's a morally rebellious position. Um, There are all kinds of intellectual arguments to mitigate against the idea that there is no God that exists. I mean, let's start with, okay, what explanation do you have for us being here? I mean, we're here, right? Unless, of course, you get into Eastern thought, which says, you know, all of this is a mirage, and none of this is even real. I mean, it gets pretty crazy. But uh, let's start in terms of a biblical argument, shall we? Do we need to go further than that? Uh, No, not really. But let's start with Romans 1, which says God has given everyone a God consciousness. Uh, We come wired this way. I don't think there's really any true atheist. Now, I think you can get there in your moral perverseness, in your rebellion, but I don't think really there's any innate atheist. I don't think so. Not according to Romans 1. Uh, In depravity, men can come to have such a seared conscience that uh, it defies the most obvious of spiritual reality. But We read Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed, against, uh, uh, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What do they do? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not that there's, there's no awareness whatsoever. They suppress it. And he says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Why? For God has shown it to them. God, they suppress the truth. God has shown it to them. And then he says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There is no excuse. You can't say, well, we completely missed it. No, you didn't. Uh, In your moral folly, in in playing the part of the fool, uh, you took that position, but really you suppressed the truth to arrive there. When one suppresses the truth that God has shown, that really is the height of folly. Uh, There is no excuse, only culpability. And again, this is the rebel fool's position. It really makes no sense on a number of levels. Let me just list, I don't have time to develop these. But uh, there are a number of intellectual arguments uh, that people put out here commonly. Like I say, I kind of gave you the bottom line from Romans 1 to start with. But there's what they call the uh, cosmological argument. And this argument says there has to be a cause. I kind of like, you know, cosmological cause. There has to be a cause. There has to be a creator behind all that exists. You know why? Because nothing comes from nothing, right? There must be something. There must be a cause. There must be a creator because we're here. Cosmological argument. That makes some sense to me. How about you? When's the last time you saw something come from nothing? 
It doesn't happen. Uh, the second argument, the uh, teleological argument. Uh, this argument is what is commonly known as intelligent design. Uh, there is design, and it's amazing. No matter how small you go, the atom, no matter how large you go, you know, the universe, the stars, and all the planets, all these things, uh, there is design in the whole fabric of creation, testifying to the reality of a sovereign designer. Design demands a designer. Makes sense to me? How about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, we're all together on this. I, I hope so, anyway. But anyway, uh, the third argument, the anthropological argument, argues that the unique nature and character of humanity means there must be a relational God. I mean, intelligence comes from intelligence, right? Rocks do not bring forth intelligence. They don't. Uh, I know your pet rock. You feel bad about this. Uh, in the whole of creation, only intelligence begets intelligence. And then one more. The moral argument says the existence of morality means there must be a supreme moral being. Uh, if there is no God, where did the universal idea of morality come from? You know, pretty much the world over, everybody agrees it, it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to steal, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There's kind of a universal code of morality in all people. Where do we get this idea? Well, it's kind of like this. We're created in the image of God. But what I, I really like this from C.S. Lewis, who at one point, by the way, claimed to be an atheist. But uh, he said this, and this is a neat quote. He says, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Hey, that's profound, isn't it? That is. I like that. From every angle, really, only a fool would say God does not exist. To me, this is the height of folly. But I think there's a better way to understand Psalm 14.1. I'm not dogmatic about this, and I think the view I just presented is also included in what I'm about to present to you. But uh, if you have a new King James, and I know some, some of you don't, but I'm being funny here, but uh, you know why I use a new King James. I've memorized everything since I was a little bitty boy in King James. And so I use a new King James. That's, that's one reason I use it. But, but actually, in my study, I have a good number of translations that I'm constantly interacting with uh, on a regular basis, including the Greek and the Hebrew. But anyway, uh, if you have a new King James, note the, uh, the words... There is, is in italics, meaning those words were supplied by the translator to make a more smooth translation. But quite literally, what the fool says is, no, God, in the sense of defiance, defiance, no, God, I defy you. I think the context would argue for this idea. Thus the fool says no to God's truth, no to divine standards, no to God's authority, no to what God says. The fool assumes the position of defiant rebel. And in saying no God, he is really refusing to recognize the sovereignty of God's lordship authority over him. 
And so the main idea here is one of moral rebellion and defiance that refuses to acknowledge God, his rightful place in their heart and life. That's a fool. It's a moral rebel. No, God, you're not going to run my life. No, God, I'm not going by your standards. So note the position of no God leads to no good. Their heart's defiance leads to corrupt and abominable works. Now, where God does not have his rightful place in a person's heart leads to terrible things. Uh, You take God out of the equation, you know, and the further our society gets from God, the worse it gets. I mean, it's not like we're getting better and better as we get further and further from God. We're getting worse and worse. But notice then he says at the end, there is none who does good. As we follow the thought through, we find that application here is really made to the whole of humanity. And by the way, Paul applies it this way in Romans chapter 3. I think what's really being said is in our natural state, we're all moral rebels. We're all defiant, not wanting to recognize the lordship authority of God over us. We all have a problem. (laughs) No, God, I don't want you running my life. That's the whole issue of conversion. See, See my morning's message. I mean, there, there is a transition that takes place there. Verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any who understand who seek God. Is there an exception? Uh, God's looking. He's evaluating. Of course, he knows all things, but, uh, you know, he's ex- just explaining it this way. People in their depravity may reject God out of hand, but it's very hard to really get rid of the reality of God. A little sarcasm here. Uh, No matter what the heart disposition of people, no matter their perverse rebellion, yet God is still God, and he is still watching. And he takes note of the condition of humanity. Note, David here depicts a divine inspection, as it were, to see if there were any among the human race who understand and seek God. Now, we know the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He doesn't get it. Are there any who show proper moral and spiritual judgment? Are there any who understand? Are there any who get God? No, there are not. Are there any who seek God? Uh, God's looking to see if there are any understand, if they seek him. Uh, Are there any who seek God on his terms? Are there any that seek after God at all? Again, the answer plainly is no, as seen in verse 3. Now, God must always take the initiative because man in his depravity never does. There is none that seeks after God. And this has always been the case from the very beginning. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, suddenly everything changed. Suddenly they were overcome with a fear of God and they sought to hide now, I want you to know it wasn't Adam who went searching after God. Oh, we've lost God. Where's God? That's not what happened. Rather, it was God who went after Adam. And we read in Genesis chapter 3, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of, of, of the garden. They weren't looking for God. They're hiding They're running from God. Then the Lord God called Adam and said, where are you? Now, God knew exactly where he was, right? 
But the point I want to make here is God is the seeker. God is taking the initiative, not Adam. Now, in our depravity, there is none that seek after God, not a single one. It was God who sent Jesus to earth on a rescue mission. It was the Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost. The initiative is always God's without exception. Now, when man makes a move towards God, it's always a false God. It's always in the direction of idolatry. This is the direction of depravity. Apart from the intervening and initiating work of God, in mercy and grace, none would ever seek him. Verse 3, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Now, you can feel free to leave at this time if you're looking for a feel-good message tonight. <laughs> Just giving you permission. Not that you need it. <laughs> but, wow, this is kind of hard, isn't it? Look at this. The comprehensive statement. Note the emphasis on all stated in one way or another. Four times in this single verse. All turned aside. No one ever comes back to God. They've all turned aside. They have together, in total unison, become corrupt. There's no exception. No one ever broke rank. The word corrupt here is a different word than the one found in verse 1, by the way. Uh, This word in verse 3 occurs in only one other place in the Old Testament, and that's found in Job 15, 16. And uh, it's translated there as filthy. How much less man who is abominable and filthy who drinks iniquity like water. So it's the word, it's translated filthy here. Uh, corrupt here in Psalm 14, 3 is very literally sour. Uh, for example, would be used in reference to sour milk. Yeah, you ever drank sour milk? One time I had one of my son-in-laws at my house. <clears throat> I guess my milk had been in there too long. And he took a big mouthful of it, and it came out about as fast as it went in. It was, it was, it was not good. <laughs> anyway, uh, the whole of the human race is really like sour milk before God. They're corrupt, spiritually speaking. It's the idea of rotten or putrid. It, it ain't pretty. There is none who does good. No, not one. Not even one. This is total depravity of the whole human race. Well, so much for being better than anyone else. You say, well, I don't think I'm totally corrupt. Yeah, (laughs) you might think that. Uh, That maybe somebody testifies that way is giving evidence that they got a problem. But God says the whole group of us are like rotten, putrid, sour milk. He's not going to drink it. Paul in Romans 3, 10 through 12 quotes this section here in Psalm 14, 1 through 3, to show that we're all under the condemnation of sin without exception. You know the verses. We've studied them recently. Romans 3, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Not just a new idea that Paul came up with. He's quoting it from the Old Testament. And it has defined the human race all along. Depravity has defined humanity through and through ever since the fall. There is no exception. Well, this is true universally, but David now focuses specifically on those who persist in their rebellion 
against God, and they take it out on God's people. Now, it's not written here, and who am I to, to even say anything, but it's almost understood. I think it is understood. Between verses 3 and 4, there's like a quiet assumption that some do turn to God and become the, the people of God. Yes, universally, we're all depraved, but some, by the grace of God, do come to God. And now, with that background, we pick up verse 4. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? The idea of iniquity here is that which is crooked or twisted, perverted. Iniquity is the distorting of that which is right. It, it is uh, doing the crooked thing that is the wrong thing. It's also translated as wicked or evildoers. Verse 4 is really a rhetorical question. In fact, the workers of iniquity show that they have no knowledge about the reality of God. If they really knew uh, anything about God, they would not abuse his people. But they don't really get it. They have no appreciation for ultimate reality. Uh, I love these verses in Psalm 33. Let all the earth fear the Lord, reverence him. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, it was done. He commanded, it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. You know, when all these world leaders get together, I often think if I had just a moment to share with them, these would be good verses. Uh, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. Oh, they got their plans. And boy, we're going to, you know, all this stuff. What stands? Well, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. God's got a plan, and he's going to see it through. You see, those with no understanding, with no knowledge, they don't get that God is sovereignly in charge. They don't get that. And consequently, they exploit, abuse, and take advantage of God's people as casually as if they were eating bread. It doesn't take a lot of thought to eat bread, does it? You ever think about what you're doing when you have toast in the morning? <laughs> I mean, it's, they're doing this like they're eating bread. They're thinking nothing of it because they have no proper knowledge of God. They don't know God. They don't get it. William MacDonald, their ignorance is, is apparent in the way they treat God's people. If they realized how God defends the poor and punishes sin, they would never devour believers as if it were a legitimate everyday thing like eating bread. And these workers of iniquity, notice he says further, they don't call on the Lord. Lord here is Yahweh. They don't recognize the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. They don't recognize their dependence upon him, so they don't call on him for help. They don't see their need of God, and so they're prayerless. Now, for the moment, the wicked have the upper hand, it would seem, but that's about to change. Their position is very, very tenuous. Verse 5, there, they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous, you take on God's people, you're in a bad place. There they are in great fear. Where? Eating God's people up like bread. It's a bad place to be. When people mess with the people of God, they're really messing with God himself. Whether they realize it or not, 
And suddenly, in that position, they find themselves in great terror. Well, David does not indicate how exactly this might happen or what it involves, but he views the position of the wicked who persecute God's people as being one step away from sudden calamity that terrorizes the wicked. You know, they're always a step away from this, by the way, the ultimate. You know what's going to happen uh, in death, right? Uh, we're in Psalm 73 here, verse 18. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation. As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with what? Tears. Tears. We know for the believer the moment we leave and uh, at death absent from the body, present with the Lord in instant glory. What about the lost? Instant terror. They're utterly consumed with terrors. It's a bad place to be if you're taking on God by taking on his people. Now, people can be so wickedly uh, cocky, but in an instant, that can all change, and it does at some point. And the stated reason is God is with the generation of the righteous. Charles Spurgeon wrote a Panic terror seized them. They feared a fear, as the Hebrew puts it, in an undefinable, horrible, mysterious dread that crept over them. The most hardened of men have their periods when conscience casts them into a cold sweat of alarm. God can put the fear into anyone in an instant, in whatever way he wants to do it. It might be a matter of conscience or circumstance. It might be in life or it might be in death. But the wicked, prayerless people who abuse God's people are standing in the place of terror. It's just a matter of when it will strike them. Verse 6, you shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Now, the poor in context here are God's people as seen in verse 4. The righteous as seen in verse 5. The poor are really vulnerable. They, they are God's vulnerable people. But notice what they do. They look to the Lord for refuge. The Lord is his refuge. In contrast to the wicked, they do call upon the Lord. They make the Lord their refuge. They put their trust in him, depending on God to ultimately deliver them. And God honors their faith. To make the Lord your refuge is an Old Testament way of expressing trust. Charles Spurgeon noted these ways that uh, the poor take counsel. He takes counsel with his own weakness and sees that he must depend upon God. He takes counsel with his observations and sees the end of the wicked. He takes counsel with the Bible and trusts it to be the word of God. He takes counsel with his own experience and sees that God answers prayer. So good applications. Well, the wicked are prayerless, and they shame the counsel of the poor. You know, and the counsel of the poor is God-oriented. It's about God. We're looking to God. Oh, they're mocking that. But God is a refuge for his people. And in the end, they are not disappointed. Again, Spurgeon said, remember, you can be laughed into hell, but you can never be laughed out of it. Oh, the wicked mock. They think they don't need God now. But suddenly, it all changes. Suddenly, they find themselves in great fear. In truth, they are the vulnerable ones. They are the ones 
who are in great danger and instantly can be in great terror. The ones in the true place of safety are those who make the Lord their refuge. Now, the word refuge means shelter from danger. It's used nine times in the Psalms. It's a wonderful reference to the Lord. It's one of my favorite designations for the Lord. He's our refuge. Let me note just a few favorite verses. Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge. He's our place of shelter. God is our refuge and strength. You say, I'm just, I'm, I'm just so weak. Yes, you are. Correct. God is our strength. He's our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. How wonderful that is. Psalm 62, 8, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Psalm 91, 2, I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In him I will trust. Well, let me ask you tonight, where is your safe place? You have a safe place? You know, in Israel, they have all these safe places. Uh, the terrorists just burned them in the safe places a lot of times. Now, where is your safe place? Better be more than just a physical place, right? The real safe place in the world is God, in God. You're trusting God. Uh, for the people of God, it's always been the Lord himself that is our safe place. He's our refuge. We run to him, and there we find shelter. Verse 7, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Kind of runs to the end of the matter. David knew that God is with his people and that his people will find refuge in him. And yet it was hard to see at the time as the wicked were eating up God's people like bread. And so he prayed, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Now, most of the commentators, and almost all the commentators I read are dispensational in their orientation. That's why I read them, but anyway. <laughs> but uh, almost all of the commentators that I read believe that ultimately David has a kingdom request in view here when God will establish his righteous rule from Zion through the Messiah in the kingdom. For example, David, who also wrote Psalm 2, how do we know that? It doesn't have that in the superscription of Psalm 2. How do we know that David wrote Psalm 2? Well, because Acts 4 says he did, right? So it's a little cross-reference work there. But anyway, uh, we read in Psalm 2, 6, Yet I have set my king where? On my holy hill of Zion. This is where Jesus is going to set up his throne. On Zion. He's going to rule from Zion when he comes back and reigns as king. So that's why we think this language here ultimately relates to the coming of the Lord and the setting up of his throne in Zion. Well, David longed for the time when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Uh, captivity is used here in a general sense. I don't think he's talking about the Babylonian captivity. Uh, it's used in a general sense as when God's people are oppressed and held under abuse. Bring back the captivity is the sense of turning things around to where God delivers his people from oppression and he restores them. This will be a time of great celebration and joy. And so David, in anticipation, says, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Lord, please bring this about to where we're celebrating, and, we're, and we want to have great joy, and we're not being eaten up by the wicked. Yes, humanity is totally depraved. You know, the Bible is kind of self-evident, isn't it? What do you see when you look around in the world? 
I mean, I see a, a world full of depraved people. How about you? Except for the saved people. I mean, it's everywhere. Turn on the news for a half hour and I'll have made my case. Humanity is totally depraved. But some find refuge in God by the grace of God, and then they are hated by the world for it. The world's got a problem with God. In the present, the wicked seem to eat up God's people like bread. But in the kingdom, God will turn the situation around so that his people will rejoice and be glad. I quote this quite often. It's just a great quote from Corey Ten Boom. No pit is so deep that he is not deeper still. With Jesus, even in our darkest moments, the best remains, and the very best is yet to be. Keep calling on the Lord, for he is with us. Keep looking to the Lord, for he is our refuge. Keep the kingdom in focus, for it is about to come into full view. And then God's people will rejoice and be glad with unspeakable joy. Keep pressing on, for the very best is yet to be. Let's stand and have our closing song.